Section 5 of A Brief History of Forestry by Bernard Fernau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 5. Germany. 7. Improvement of the crop. Thinning of stands had been practiced early in the 16th century, not for improvement of the remaining stand so much as to secure fence material, although in 1531 the observation was already recorded that thinning improved and stimulated the remaining growth. In the 17th century, opposite views, or at least doubts as to its usefulness, were expressed in the forest orders, and sometimes thinning was even forbidden. Even in the 18th century, some of the prominent foresters, Doebel and Beckmann, were opposed to it, and although others favored the operation, the practice of it remained limited. In 1761, we find the first good statement of the theory of thinnings by Berlepsch, who advised taking out the suppressed trees when the sound poles were clear of lower and middle branches. He also accentuated the financial argument of earlier returns and increased value of the remainder. About the same time, Xanthier recommended two thinnings, namely for conifers first in the thirtieth to fortieth year, and again in the fiftieth year, for broadleaf forest first in the forty-fifth, and again in the eightieth to ninetieth year. In 1765, the financial gain from thinnings is figured by Urtelt, and the possible reduction of the rotation due to thinnings is recognized by Liubert in 1774. Just as the thinning in polewoods arose from the need of earlier utilization, so the weeding of young growths was done for the purpose of getting material for wives to bind the grain, etc. The removal of coppice shoots and oak plantings was practiced in Prussia in 1719, and the thinning of two dense sowings was advised by Karlowitz in 1713. Yet much later, even such an intelligent man as Ottelt inveighed against the weeding out of the birch and spruce sowings because, quote, nature prefers variety with which preference it is not good to interfere. This was in opposition to von Langen, 1745, who prescribed for the first time regular cleaning or weeding, especially the removal of the softwoods, aspen and birch, and of coppice shoots from seedling forest. It was also known that this weeding is best done, quote, in the full sap, in order to kill the stocks. 8. Methods of Regulating Forest Management Organized forest management was slower to develop than silvicultural methods. The first attempts to bring order into the progress of fellings took the form of dividing the whole area into a certain number of fellings—12, 16, 20, 30, etc., Several ordinances dating from the middle of the 15th and 17th centuries containing prescriptions to that effect. It is doubtful whether the numbers of these areas indicate years of rotation, in which case they could only have applied to coppice, or whether they indicate periods of return in selection forest, although the historians seem to jump to the former conclusion. The area division practiced by Van Langen in the Harz Mountains, 1745, who prescribed the division of larger districts into 50 and 60, of smaller districts into 20 to 30 felling areas, also leaves it doubtful whether the areas corresponded to an assumed rotation or to a period of return. At first, 
the division was not into equal areas, for no survey existed, and its object was simply to localize the cutting and provide orderly progress. The subdivision was made in the mountain country by following the topography, valleys, and ridges, while in the plain the lines opened up for purposes of the chase, to set up nets, called Schneisen or Gestella, rides, bounding square areas called Jagen, Quadrat, Stalung, were used for the limitation of the felling areas. Most commonly, however, largely due to absence of surveys, the ordered division did not materialize, but only existed on paper. With more exact measuring of areas, and with the conception of a rotation or longer periods of return, it was recognized that the inequality of the sites or soil qualities, especially in mountain districts, produced very unequal felling budgets. To overcome this inequality, Jacobi, in Göttingen, 1741, introduced proportional felling areas, making the felling areas on poor sites permanently larger. Similarly, Van Langen and Xanthier attempt to secure equal annual returns without slavishly holding to the geometric division, merely making sure that the total area be cut over in the predetermined rotation. The first attempts to introduce a regulated management by making a volume division the basis is recorded from the Hartz Mountains in 1547. This method, based on very crude estimates, although upon very fair forest description, was continued into the 18th century. In the last half of the 18th century, all these crude methods were improved and applied on extensive areas. In 1785, Xanthier combined area and volume division, determining the felling budget on each felling area by counting and estimating the trees, and calculating how many trees could be used annually under a sustained yield management, the area division being used only as a check or a means of control. A very considerable advance was made by Uttelt, who surveyed and regulated the Weimar forests in 1760, in the elaboration of details and establishment of proper principles for regulating the felling budget. In his forest description, he introduces for the first time periodic age classes, usually six but of uneven length. Young growth below twelve years, thicket, twelve to twenty-four years, pole wood, twenty-four to forty years, clear timber, forty to fifty, medium timber, 50 to 75, mature timber, 75 years and over. He divides the forest into proportional areas, which were marked by stones in the woods, equalizing them according to age, quality, increment, soil, exposure, so as to secure equal annual budgets. The stands were ranged into seven or eight unequal age classes, and each into as many annual felling areas as there are years in the age class. If some of the age classes were absent, he extended the time for cutting in the older class until the younger had grown to the proper age, and by varying the cut from good to poor sites for stands he tried to even out the budgets. The volume budget he determined by average increment measurements. This method was, however, much too far advanced and required too much mathematics to find imitators at that time. Another method, which proved also too complex for the foresters of the time, was that of Van Vedel, 
Nevertheless, by 1790 he had by it put into working over 800,000 acres in Silesia. He divided this area into districts, the districts into blocks or management classes, and used an elaborated proportional area division for determining the felling budget. He distinguished quality of stand and quality of site, and made four site classes. The volume of stock he found by means of sample areas, to which he added the increment in order to find the total volume for harvest. When it could be determined how long, with a given budget, the stand would last, or what average annual felling budget could be taken before the next age class would be mature. In the North German plain, with very uniform conditions of soil and timber, the method of equal felling areas was the most natural and most easily applied. Frederick the Great, who took a considerable interest in forestry matters, ordered such an area division for the state pineries in 1740, fixing upon different numbers of felling areas, but finally in 1770 deciding on a rotation of seventy years lack of personnel retarded progress in this forest survey and regulation until seventeen seventy eight van Kropf undertook the direction not agreeing with his master regarding the short rotation of seventy years he arranged to have each district divided into two working blocks and by cutting alternately in these managed to double that rotation his successor hennet in 1788 devised a new method by introducing allotment of a number of annual felling areas to a period of the rotation when at least the periodic budget could be equalized a value or money yield equalization of the felling budgets was also attempted for easier handling the forest was divided into small compartments or yagen and the classification of four still uneven periodic age classes of different length for conifers and broadleaf forest and three site qualities were employed the merchantable stock was ascertained by a sample area method and the felling budget by dividing the oldest age class by the number of years it must last until the next was ready since no attempt was made to secure a proper age class gradation the method failed to improve conditions for the next rotation some five hundred thousand acres were regulated according to this plan in prussia probably very superficially in seventeen eighty nine bavaria also ordered a division into annual felling areas in all these methods of regulating the yield or budget the area played the main role the volume being only a secondary consideration the first elaboration of a pure volume division was made by beckmann in seventeen fifty nine he estimated stock on hand by trees and guessed more or less at the increment, allowing two and a half, two and one percent for the different sites, and then made a year-to-year -year calculation of stock for a hundred and twenty-five years. How the felling budget was finally determined is not known. Two methods were simultaneously devised in Württemberg in 1783, which formed the transition to the so-called allotment methods making periodic age classes of an equal number of years and allotting either felling areas or volumes to each period of the rotation. Incapacity of the officials prevented the application of the one method, while the other, devised by Maurer, remained also only a proposition. But in 1788, Krechting, in his mathematical contributions to forestry science, 
teaches a pure volume allotment method with 10-year age classes and nearly all the apparatus which was afterward developed by Hartisch, who in the next period dominated to such a large extent the development of forestry in all its branches. 9. Improvements in Methods of Mensuration In scientific direction, the mathematical disciplines were the first to be developed. The natural sciences received attention much later. A considerable amount of mathematical knowledge was required for this work of forest organization. The mathematical apparatus of the foresters, even at the end of this period, was rather slender, but its development went hand in hand with the development of these methods of regulation, and even elaborate mathematical formulae for determining felling budgets were not absent. Until nearly the middle of the 18th century, surveys of exact nature were almost unknown. Only when the division into equal or proportionate felling areas became the basis for determining the felling budgets did the necessity for such surveys present itself. Plain table and compass were the instruments which came into use in the beginning of the 18th century, but not until the latter half of that century were extensive forest surveys and maps of various character made especially in Prussia under Vidal, Kropf, and Hennant. The methods of measurement of wood developed still later. Until Othelt's time, no method of precise determination of volumes was known, everything being estimated by cords or by diameter breast height and height or by the number of boards which a tree would make, board feet. The diameter was sometimes used as a price-maker, the price increasing in direct proportion to the diameter increase. Othelt calculated the volume of coniferous trees as cones, and Ferencle, who wrote a book on mathematics for the use of foresters, calculated timbers with the top removed by using the average diameter, to which Henert added the volume of a cone with the difference of the two diameters as a base to make the total tree volume. Most measurements of standing trees were, of course, made on the circumference, for, in the absence of calipers, the diameter would be directly measured only on the felled tree. Double had already measured the height by means of a rectangular triangle, and the first real hypsometer with movable sights was described by Jung in 1781, and a complete instrument, which could be used for measuring both height and diameter at any height, similar to some more modern ones, was constructed by Reinhold. The termination of the real wood contents in a cord of wood, and of the volume of bark by measurement was taught by Uttalt, and the method of immersion in water and measuring the displaced volume by Hennert, 1782. In 1785, Krona first called attention to the variation of the increment in different age classes, and the need of determining the accretion for each separately. In 1789, Trunk taught how to determine average felling age increment, and also the method of determining the change of diameter classes, which is now used by the United States Forest Service. Quote, on good soil a tree grows one inch in three years, on medium soil in four years, on poor soil in five years. With this knowledge, the attainment of a given diameter or the change from one diameter or age class to the next could be calculated. Volume tables were at Trunk's command, and Paulson in 1787 
Krechting in 1788 mentioned periodic yield tables, but generally speaking, ocular taxation or estimating was the rule. Checked by experience in actual fellings, the method of the American timber looker. Generally, of course, only the log timber was estimated as with us, and only the very roughest estimating, or rather guessing, was in vogue until near the end of the period. The first attempt at closer measurement was made by Beckmann, 1756, who surrounded the area to be measured with twine, drove a colored wooden peg into each tree, one color for each diameter class, when, knowing the original number of pegs that had been taken out, the difference gave the number of trees in each diameter class, and by multiplying the average cubic contents of a measured sample tree in each class, by the number in the class, its volume was found. The method, often employed at present, of ascertaining by tally the diameter classes on strips forty to fifty paces wide, the so-called strip survey, was described by Zantier in 1763. These measurements were usually confined to sample areas, the use of such being already known in 1739. The contents of the sample area, if a special degree of accuracy was desired, were ascertained by felling the whole and measuring. Uttelt, of mathematical fame, was the first to publish something about the determination of the age of trees by counting rings, although the practice probably antedates this account. He knew of the dependence of the ring width on the site and on the density of the stand. It seems that long before this time the French had made the determination of yield in a more scientific manner. Réamur, reporting in 1721 to the French Academy comparative studies of the yield of coppice and of volumes of wood. Ertelt, too, laid the foundation of forest financial calculations when he ascertained the value of a forest by determining the value of an acre of mature wood, the oldest age class, and multiplying it by half the acreage of the whole forest, suggesting the well-known expression for the normal stock, I times R over 2, soon after to be developed by an obscure Austrian tax collector. Even the first forest finance calculations with the use of compound interest, and a comparison of the profitableness of the different methods of management, are to be recorded as made by Zantier in 1764, bringing the beginning of forestal statistics into this period. 10. Methods of Lumbering and Utilization At the beginning of this period, rough exploitation was still mainly in vogue, only parts of trees being used, just as in the United States now. Here and there, attempts were made toward more conservative use. For instance, at Brunswick in 1547, the use of log timber for fuel was discouraged. In Saxony, as early as 1560, the brushwood was utilized for fuel. High stumps were a usual feature in spite of the threats of punishments of the forest ordinances, as in Bavaria, 1531. The axe was the only instrument used until the end of the 18th century for felling as well as cutting into lengths. Not until 1775 do we find an allusion to the use of the saw, when the forest ordinance of Weimar ordered that the saw cut should be made for three-fourths of the tree's diameter and the axe be used to finish the last quarter. Not until the 18th century was the fuel wood split in the woods, 
and it was near the end of the period before it was set up in mixed cords, round and split, after the splitting had been introduced. The measurement was, until about that time, made merely in loads, the cord being of later introduction. The value of low stumps and of the use of the saw was recognized in Austria in 1786, to show how variously and locally the need of conservative use of wood developed, we may cite the fact that in the Hots, about 1750, trees were dug with their roots as now in some of the pineries of the Mark Brandenburg, in order to utilize more of the body wood and the root wood. In 1757 we find stump pulling machines described. In measurement of standing trees, the circumference at breast height was measured with a chain, and for the body wood, when felled, the mean diameter was employed. As regards the felling time, specific advice is found in many forest ordinances which recommend mostly winter felling, stating the proper beginning and end of the season by the phases of the moon, the rule being that all white wood, for example conifers, beech, and aspen, should be felled on the increase or waxing of the moon, oak at the waning, but coppice because it is desired to secure a new growth at the waxing moon. Prescription was also made sometimes regarding the time by which the removal of the wood from the felling area was to be finished, May to June. Means of transportation were poor up to the end of the period. Snow, as in the United States, was in the northern country the main reliance for moving the wood. River driving, both with and without rafts, was well organized. Various systems of log slides were developed to a considerable extent. In one place, even an iron pipe, 900 feet in length, is reported to have been used in such capacity. Originally, the consumer cut his own wood, but in the middle of the 17th century, special wood choppers appear to have been employed, for, in 1650, mention is made in Saxony of men who, under oath to secure honest service, were organized for the exploitation of the different classes of wood. A system of jobbers came into existence about this time, something like the logging bosses in the United States, Holzmeister, who were responsible for the execution of the logging job. The organization of wood choppers went so far that in 1718 we find in the Hartz Mountains mention of an accident insurance and mutual charity association among them. The sale of wood was at first carried on in the house. Later it became customary to indicate in the forest the trees to be cut or the area from which they should be cut by the purchaser, and finally they were felled by the employees of the owner. For a long time, persisting into the 18th century, the sale was by area, and this method developed the necessity of surveying, at the same time, however, sales by the tree and by wood measure occurred, but... Only in the 18th century did the present method of selling wood by measure after felling come into existence. In Prussia, the buyer had to take the risk of felling and pay even if the tree proved to be rotten or broke in the felling. The forest owner seems to have had the whip hand in determining the price one-sidedly, revising, for example, increasing the toll in longer or shorter intervals. But... In 1713, we find mention of wood auctions, or at least similar methods of getting the best prices. Finally, special market days for making sales and for designating of wood were instituted. On these days also, 
all offenses against the forest laws were adjudged. 11. Forest Administration The administration of the different forest properties which the princes had aggregated in the course of time was at first a part of the general administration of the princely property. The requirements in the woods being merely to look after utilization and protection, illiterate underlings, Faustkenechte, were sufficient to carry out the police functions, generally under a Faustmeister or Oberforstmeister, who from time to time would make an inspection tour. Later on, when a more intensive forest management had come into existence, it became customary to call in experienced foresters from outside to make inspections and give advice. A much more elaborate organization of services, however, reported in the mining districts of the Hartz Mountains in 1547, with the director of mines, Berg Hauptmann, at the head, and different grades of officials under him, who were called together periodically for reports and discussions. Until the middle of the 18th century, all those employed in the forest service, at least those in the superior positions, had also duties in connection with the chase, the head official of the hunt being also the head of the forest service, and hunting had usually superior claims to forestry. The men were supposed to be masters of the two branches, to be familiar with the technique of the hunt and of forestry, Hirschgerecht and Holzgerecht. The higher positions were usually reserved to the nobility, until, during the 18th century, the Cameralis came into control of the administration, and with them, under the mercantilistic teachings, the apparatus of officials also increased. These men usually possessed wide, but not deep, knowledge of the matters bearing upon their charges. In Prussia, in 1740, the forest service was at least in part combined with the military service, Frederick the Great instituting the corps of riding couriers for the carrying of despatches who were selected from the Forest Service, an institution which persists up to date in the corps of Feldjäger, while the sons of foresters were enlisted in a troop known as Fussjäger Chasseurs. A new era dates from the middle of the 18th century when the connection with the hunt, the military organization, and the preferred position of the nobility were at least in part abrogated, and a more technical organization was attempted. The cause for this change was the increase of wood prices, which made a more technical management desirable, and also a decrease in the passion for the hunt. Still, although the forests in Bavaria were declared in 1780 to 1790 to be of more importance than the hunt, and the two services were distinctly separated, the head of the hunt still ranked above the head of the forest service. In Prussia, the professional men became early independent and influential, and by 1770 an organization had been perfected which excelled in thoroughness and simplicity. The salaries of the foresters consisted originally mainly in a free house, use of land and pasture rights, their uniform, and incidental emoluments such as a toll for the designation of timber, etc. Later, when everywhere else a regular money management had been introduced, the absence of a cash income and general poverty forced the foresters to steal and extort, and the bad reputation established in the last part of the 18th century, as well as the bad practice, persisted until the 19th century. 
the lower grades in the service were exceedingly ignorant, and their social position consequently very low. Their main business was indeed simple, and consisted in the booking of the cut, issuing permits for the removal and the sale of wood, and looking after police functions in the woods. Yet, by 1781, we find regular planting plans submitted in the Prussian administration, and in 1787, felling plans are on record. The administration of justice against offenders in the forest was until the end of the 18th century in charge of the head foresters, and only then was transferred to law officers. Theft of wood, as in olden days, was considered as a smaller offense than other thefts except if it was cut wood. In the beginning of the period, the judge had wide latitude as to amount of the fine to be imposed, but in the 17th century more precise fines were fixed, and in the 18th century a revision of the fines brought them into proportion with the value of the stolen wood. A choice of punishments by fines, imprisonment, or labor in the woods was then also instituted. 12 forestry education the course of education for the foresters until the middle of the eighteenth century was a simple one and mainly directed to learning the manipulations of the chase training of dogs tending of horses setting of nets shooting etc two or three years life with a practical hunter were followed by journeying and working for different employers wood lore being picked up by the way from those that knew when, in the eighteenth century, the need for better woods knowledge became pressing, the few really good forest managers were sought out by the young men who wished to secure this knowledge. In this way, a number of so-called master schools came into existence, each depending on one man. Such a school was that of Van Santier in Vernigeroda, later transferred to Ilsenburg started in 1763 and ending with his death in 1778. Theoretical teaching and opportunity for practical demonstration here was such that even students from the Berlin School and men in actual employment attended the courses. The two great masters and fathers of modern forestry, Hartisch and Cotta, each instituted such master schools, the former in 1789 and the latter in 1785. Cotta's school was afterwards transferred to Tarant and became a state institution. The interest of the state in forestry education found first expression in Prussia, in a course of lectures in botany, later also in forest economy, given to the forest officials by Gleditsch, professor of botany at the University of Berlin, 1770, to which was added a practicum at Tegel under Bergstorff, who finally became the head of this mixed state school and continued in this position until at his death in 1802, the school was discontinued. In imitation of this move by Prussia, a military planting school was instituted by Württemberg at Solitude in 1770. The most noteworthy feature of this school, which under various changes lasted less than 25 years, was the course of lectures by Stahl mentioned before. Besides this higher school, a lower grade school was started in 1783, but its career was even briefer, not more than ten years. Bavaria organized a forest school at Munich in 1790 with a four-years course, and at least three years' study at this school was required of those seeking employment in the state service. 
but without having ever flourished, this school too collapsed by 1803. 13. Forestry Literature The oldest forestry literature of this period is contained in the many forest ordinances, which allow us to judge from their prescriptions as to the conditions of the practice in the woods and as to the gradual accumulation of empiric knowledge. Of a forestry science, one could hardly speak until an attempt had been made to organize the knowledge thus empirically acquired into a systematic presentation, and this was not done until the middle or last half of the 18th century. The first attempts at a literary presentation of the empiric knowledge are found in the encyclopedic volumes of the so-called Hausfeta, household fathers, domestic economists, who treated in a most diffuse manner of agriculture in all its aspects, including silviculture. A number of these tomes appeared during the 17th century, the best and most influential being published at the very beginning of that century, 1595 to 1609, written by a preacher from Silesia, Johann Kolleris, and entitled Economia Ruralis et Domestica, worin das Amt aller braven Hausvetter und Hausmutter begriffen. Kolleris relied upon home experience and not, as Petrus de Crescentius, in his earlier work, Pradium Rusticum, translated from the French in 1592, had done upon the scholastic expositions of the Italians. He was rewarded by the popularity of his work, which went through thirteen editions, and became very widely known. Somewhat earlier, a jurist, Noé Murer, wrote a book on forest law and hunting, second edition, 1576, which on this field remained long in authority and gives insight into the condition of forest use at the time. But the first independent work on forestry, divorced from the hunt and farming, did not appear until 1713, Silvicultura Economica, written by Saxon director of mines Hans Karl von Karlowitz. This book, while containing quaint and amusing ideas, gives many correct rules for silvicultural methods, especially as regards planting and sowing, but the subject of forest management or organization is entirely neglected. At about the same time, 1710, a forest official, von Guchhausen, published Notabilia Venatoris, which, however, contained little more than a description of the species of trees and methods of their utilization. About the middle of the 18th century, great activity began in the literary field. This was carried on by two distinct classes of writers, namely the empiricists and the cameralists. The former, the Holzgerechte Jäger, were the practical men of the woods who proved in many directions most unpractical and exhibited in their writings outside of the record of their limited experience the crassest ignorance the cameralists were educated in law and political economy and while lacking practical contact with the woods work tried to sift and systematize the knowledge of the empiricists and to secure for it a tangible basis some five or six of the empiricists deserve notice as writers. The first and most noted of them was Döbel, Heinrich Wilhelm, whose book, Jäger Praktika, Hunter's Practice, published in 1746, remained in authority until modern times for the part referring to the chase. The author was preeminently a hunter, 
who worked in various capacities in Saxony, a self-taught man with very little knowledge of natural history. Being familiar mainly with broadleaf forest, he condemned planting and thinning, but described quite well for his time the methods of survey, subdivision, estimating and measuring, and the methods of selection forest and coppice with standards. His ignorance is characterized by his reference to the, quote, sulfurous and nitric elements of the soil as cause of spontaneous forest fires. Opinionated and one-sided, like many so-called practical men, he came into polemic controversies with other practitioners, not less opinionated among them J. G. Beckmann, who worked in another part of Saxony, where, having to deal with coniferous woods, he had gathered different experiences from those of Double. Although he was himself poorly educated, especially in natural sciences, he complained of the ignorance of the foresters, and in his book, Anweisung zu einer pfleglichen Forstwirtschaft, 1759, used for the first time the word Forstwissenschaft, forest science, and insisted upon the necessity of studying nature. He may be credited with having really advanced forest organization by devising the first good volume division method, and silviculture by advocating the method of clearing followed by sowing. The first practical forester with a university education was J. J. Buchting, who worked in the Hartz Mountains. His main interest lay in the direction of survey, division, and orderly utilization. He did not, however, make any striking advance except that he gave equal standing to both planting and sowing. The two most eminent practitioners of the period, however, active during the middle of the century, were Johann Georg von Langen and his pupil, Hans Dietrich von Zantier, both of noble family and better educated than most of their contemporaries, and both engaged in the organization and management of Hartz Mountain Forests, namely those of the Duke of Brunswick and of Count of stolberg Venegoroda. The former, without occupying himself directly with literary work, laid down in his expert reports and in his working plans many instructions which form the basis for orderly management and silviculture far ahead of the times. Santier, writing considerably, especially Kurzer Systematische Grundrisch der Praktischen Forstwissenschaft, 1764, is also notable as the founder of the first forestry school at Vanegaroda, 1763. Another of this class of better educated practitioners and co-worker with the former two was von Lasberg, who in 1764 to 1777 organized the Saxon forests. An interesting incident in the life of the last three men is their journey to Denmark and Norway, whither they were called to organize the management of the forests connected with the mines. Another prominent forest manager of the last half of the century, whose literary work is to be found only in various excellent official instructions, among which is one for the teaching of foresters, was the head of the Hessian Forest Service, a nobleman, Van Belch. Of the Cameralists, who helped to make forestry literature six or seven deserve mention, these men of education and polyhistors were either at the head of affairs or else professors at universities where they included forestry as one of the branches of political economy. The credit of the first really systematic presentation of forestry principles and rules 
as developed at the time, belongs to Wilhelm Gottfried von Moser, a pupil of von Langen, who served in various principalities and finally with the Prince of Taxis. In his Principles of Forest Economy, published in 1757, which for the first time brought out the economic importance of the subject, he discusses in two volumes divided into nine chapters the different branches of forestry. A mining engineer, J. A. Kramer, came next with a very notable book, Anleitung zum Forstwesen, 1766, which although not as comprehensive as Moses treats the subject of silviculture very well. Equal in arrogance and opinionated self-satisfaction to any of the empiricists with whom he frequently crossed swords was the Brunswick councillor von Broca, who, as an amateur practicing forestry on his own estate, developed the characteristic trait of the empiricists, namely, a profound belief in his own infallibility. He produced, besides many polemic writings, in which he charged the whole class of foresters with ignorance, laziness, and dishonesty, a magnum opus in four volumes entitled True Bases of the Physical and Experimental General Science of Forestry, which is in Ola Padrida of small value. Less original, but more fair and well-informed, a typical representative of the Camaralis was J. F. Stahl finally head of the forest administration of Württemberg, and at the same time lecturer on mathematics, natural history, and forestry at the Forest School of Solitude, Stuttgart. Although an amateur in the field of forestry, he was a good teacher, and left many valuable and wise prescriptions evolved during his administration. He compiled in four volumes a dictionary of forest, fish, and game practice. Onomatologia, Forestalis Piscatoria Venatoria, 1772-1781, and founded the first forestry journal. Since 1770, forestry courses had been given for the Camaralists at most of the German universities, and many of the professors prepared textbooks for the purpose. At least three of these professors deserve mention, Beckmann, Jung, and Trunk. The first, J. Beckmann, professor of political economy at Göttingen, one of the most noted Camaralists, was author of a work in 45 volumes on the principles of German agriculture, 1769, in which he devotes 61 pages to forestry, giving a complete system of forestry with extracts from all known forestry writings. J. H. Jung, who gave a special course on forestry at the Camaralschule of Lautern, published a textbook in 1781 in which forest botany was well treated. J. J. Trunk, who was Oberforstmeister in Austria, as well as professor at Freiburg, was the most prominent of the three and wrote a comprehensive work full of practical sense. Neues Vollständiges Forsterbuch oder Systematische Grundsätze des Forstrechtes, der Forstpolizei und Forstökonomie nebst Anhang von Anslandischen Holzarten von Torf und Steinkollen. 1789. While at first the ephemeral writings, especially the polemic ones of the empiricists, found room in literary and cameralistic magazines, the need of a professional journal first found expression in 1763 in Stahl's Allgemeines Ökonomisches Forstmagazin, 
which ran into twelve volumes and contains many articles important to the history of forestry and is especially rich in its reference to foreign literature two continuations of the magazine under different editorships were of less value but von moser's forst archive running from seventeen eighty eight to eighteen o seven with its thirty volumes is an authority and a historical source of the first rank a very characteristic literature of the last half of the eighteenth century consisted in forest calendars in which advice as to monthly and seasonal procedures in the forest were given beckmann and zantier being among the authors end of section five recording by john banstan savannah georgia